this heavily regulated industry is a difficult industry to be operating in. Natural gas prices are set by the government. Energy prices, electricity prices are set by the government too. You only have control on your production and nothing else. You can't determine your price. You can't determine your input price. You can't bargain. There's nothing you can do. We started losing money. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Attila Kirksall. Attila, are you ready to rock? I am ready. Let's go. All right. Let me tell the audience a bit about your background. Having graduated from Bosphorus University, Department of Mechanical Engineering in 1983, Attila received an MBA degree from Drexel University in beautiful Philadelphia in 1985. Between 1991 and 1996, Attila served as a general manager at Inter Yachturum, and between 1996 and 2001, he worked as a CEO of the same company. From 2002 until 2013, Attila has been acting as the general manager of Dundas Unler Standard and now Unler and Company under its new title. Mr. Kirksall is currently a member of the board of directors of Unler Securities. In previous years, he also served in, as the Capital Markets Association chairman, board of directors of the CFA Institute, which is where I really got to know. Attila. He's also Vice President of Financial Literacy Association of Turkey Fodder. Welcome to the show. Take a minute, Attila, and fill in a little bit of tidbits about your life. Well, thanks, Andrew, first of all, for inviting me here. It's always painful to talk about your you know, bad investments, but I hope it helps other investors so that they learn from our bad experiences. So I'm, I'm an investment banker. I've been in investment banking for uh, almost three decades now. So I've been enjoying every moment of it. I, I have two children. They just started university in the US. So my daughter uh, is attending UCLA and she's uh, majoring in cognitive sciences. And uh, my son goes to Brown University and he'll study pre-med. So he wants to become a medical doctor. So none of them chose finance profession as I did, but I am very happy with their choices and uh, wish them all the luck. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I'm based in Turkey, Istanbul, Turkey. And uh, except for the first few years of my career where I lived in the US, I started in Princeton, New Jersey as a financial analyst. I've been here maybe for almost 30 years. So I served in Turkey and in an emerging market, in a volatile emerging market. So I have a lot of worse or bad investment experiences, but today's is probably the worst. <laughs> okay, well, let's get into it. It's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Okay, so this was a personal investment with uh, six other friends of mine. You know, we gathered an investment club, basically. And in the past, we've done some very successful investments. 
probably we gained confidence that we shouldn't deserve and went into this investment in year of 2007. So we decided to invest into the energy sector because Turkey had a severe power shortage at the time, power generation shortage. And uh, we decided to get together and uh, invest into this cogeneration plant. Basically, what happens is you know, we bought three machines of four megawatts each and uh, of uh, four megawatt generation capacity. Our input would be natural gas and our output would be electricity and steam. And we would sell the electricity to either to companies or to the grid. There is a countrywide electricity grid in Turkey, like in many other countries. And uh, steam, we would sell mostly to local companies uh, close to our plant, because it's, of course, very difficult to transport the steam. At the time, it looked like a very feasible investment. And uh, we chose the town of Antalya, which is southern Turkey. It's a tourism town. And it's a very vibrant town. There are a lot of hotels, amusement parks, and the town receives millions of tourists in every year. And in the summer season especially, uh, it's a very vibrant, very active city. And at the time, uh, they had a severe power shortage too, about 15 million kilowatt hours per day. We decided to set up this plant, which would produce 100 million kilowatt hours per year, basically six days of need of Antalya. And there weren't that many uh, other companies, other plants either. So we thought, you know, we could sell our output easily. So we bought this land in, in an industrial zone in Antalya so that we would be close to some manufacturers to whom we would sell our steam. Because this generation plants are more profitable if you can also sell the steam, because the steam is a byproduct. If you sell it, you get some additional revenue next to the electricity. Sounds like a huge yeah. project. What was like it's the size actually, of it? It's not, it's not actually, it's not, it's not a huge project because like seven of us, we've been funding the project with our personal savings. So it's not huge, but for us, it was a sizable investment. So right. whatever we lost there was painful, you know. This was only 14, uh, 12 megawatts, so not, nothing too big. Okay. But, you know, of course, it won't last. I mean, we, we all lost a nice, like, really uh, sizable <laughs> amount of saving. So we also leveraged, uh, we, bought, uh, we borrowed from banks, so we used uh, about 60% leverage. And we bought this plant, and uh, we, bought, we also bought the land in this industrial zone, set up the plant. So the idea was initiated in 2007. So it took us three years to get it going. In, in the year of 2010, production resumed and we started selling electricity to, to the grid. And uh, this is a heavily regulated industry, of course, like in many other countries. Energy market regulatory authority that defines all the rules. And also they said they determine the prices of electricity. There's a demand and supply mechanism also, but occasionally the uh, energy market regulator inter intervenes and uh, determines the price. And the natural gas price is uh, mostly determined, uh, of course we import the natural gas, mostly from Russia. And so there are agreements between the two countries 
but domestically, again, the natural gas price is set by the government. So basically, we, after we started operating, you know, we realized that uh, this heavily regulated industry is a difficult industry to be operating in because natural gas prices are set by the government and energy prices, electricity prices are set by the government too. You only have control on your production and nothing else. You can't determine your price. You can't determine your input price. You can't bargain. There's nothing you can do. Since 2010, the country has gone through many years of elections. I mean, we had some uh, like political uncertainties and a lot of elections locally. And at every election, you know, there are populistic applications by the government populistic moves by the government. And sometimes they don't increase the electricity price as much as they should. And sometimes they increase the natural gas price above the electricity price or our like margin becomes negative. So we started, <laughs> yeah, like shortly, I mean, in, in, in summary, we started losing money. So natural gas cost us more than the electricity that we've been selling. And steam, we couldn't sell all the time. The economy was like slowing and uh, the manufacturers cut their productions and they didn't need our steam. So all of a sudden, uh, we saw that, you know, we've been, uh, we started losing money. And actually, when we first started, you know, we, this wasn't an ambitious project. I mean, we weren't, you know, after doubling our money or making a huge return. So our IRR target was anywhere from like 10 to maybe 18% like with leverage. So it wasn't a too ambitious project. For us, it was a project where, you know, we would get a like nice annual return that would supply our annual income. You know? we, didn't, we never thought of investing here and selling it at uh, two times or three times. But of course, it turned out to be a very painful <laughs> investment. And uh, so we decided to exit, but there weren't any buyers at the time. And we also owed the bank a serious amount of money. And we stopped production because it was a negative margin business. So stopping production was better. Eventually, we started looking for buyers for our machines. And we got some buyers from countries like Iran and Iraq, where natural gas is very cheap. So their input is uh, very cheap and electricity is relatively higher. So we've been uh, talking to some buyers and I think we decided to sell the plant in 2014. And since then, we negotiated maybe at least with 10 parties. And some of them even put down some deposits. Uh, like we agreed on the price and everything and they put down some deposits and eventually they just left their deposits and uh, decided not to buy. But finally, after all these years, uh, there's a buyer and we are selling the machinery and we'll be left with the land. Once we sell the land, we'll recoup probably 10% of our initial investment. <laughs> so we'll have, we'll have lost 90% uh, of the initial investment. If and then uh, we can sell the land. So oh. in a nutshell, it's been a, like a 11, 12 year story and a lot of, a lot of work. I mean, uh, imagine 
like starting something from scratch and you buy the land, you buy the machinery, you hire the people, you train them and uh, you start producing and you start selling and we discussed with many buyers, you know, uh, we've been having agreements, one-on-one -on -one agreements with companies, manufacturers like to buy our electricity and to buy our steam. We had agreement with the government like to sell our uh, steam to the grid, bank agreements, bank loans and all that. And the group, I mean, these seven people, two were ex-bank CEOs. One was an energy specialist. I mean, he knew the business very well. One of them is a CEO of a local group, like one of major local groups with a lot of experience in energy. And uh, two are investment bankers, one being myself, and uh, one is a commercial banker. So really, uh, and one uh, from uh, uh, ex-Arthur Anderson guy, and a uh, tax specialist, and uh, extremely experienced guy in accounting and tax issues, so very well-known person in Turkey. So it was a great group, actually, but <laughs> unfortunately, the investment decision we made uh, wasn't the right one. Uh, well, there's so many questions that I have that I'm going to kind of bring the questions together, but I'm going to ask you some questions to clarify a few things. And then I'm going to ask you also, you know, you, you feel free to answer about the lessons that you learn. But one of the first questions is uh, I would have is, were there other companies doing this at the time that were making money or was everybody suffering under what the government, for instance, like, was it because you were small, you didn't have such a bargaining power as a much bigger plant or was it other plants owned by the government so they could bear the loss or was everybody suffering in the industry? Good question. When we first started, actually, I forgot to mention the first years, the first one or two years were fine and no problem. So everything was according to the program. But then too many companies started being set up. So all of a sudden, you, we saw a lot of competition. And also, the government incentivized uh, coal production, like uh, energy production through coal, which is against the you know, global trend. And we've seen lots of companies like mushrooming in this sector. They all became loss-making maybe after two or three years. You know, everybody in the industry, no matter what the size. Of course, we had a disadvantage of being small, but at the end, we've been lucky that we were small because we could, you know, handle the loss. Some of them just uh, went uh, just bankrupt and went out of the business. So at least we sustained for a while and uh, now we are selling a portion of it and recovering okay. even a small portion. So let's go through the lessons that you learn. And I think one of the questions that I would have when you talk about your lessons is just yeah. what did you miss? You explain a highly qualified group of people with great experience, yeah. with good ethics and the like, I know because of um, our association with CFA. I can imagine that it seemed like you had all the bases covered. As you look yeah. back now, what would you say that, that you missed and what are the lessons that you learned from this? That's right. So also I should mention that I mean with this team I mean we had a great feasibility study and we took advantage of all tax incentives and what you can get I mean and we got uh, through our contacts we got the best uh, loan terms you know as far as the maturity and the interest rate and everything so everything was pretty much perfect lesson number 1 is 
I don't, I don't think you should invest into an industry or a company which can be subject to political interventions. Here, the, like, the politicians, you know, they determine your input price and your product price. So, you know, that's number one. I don't think you should be in such an industry unless you have extremely good political connections. But then again, I mean, having good political connections is, is uh, then, uh, you know, it becomes something else, right? I mean, it doesn't become a real... Well, it can, it can work against that's, you after an election in some countries. <laughs> so that's lesson number one. Lesson number two, this was a very heavily regulated industry. And uh, you get a lot of uh, costs like uh, from this uh, regulatory actions. And uh, we thought, you know, there is regulation, so the regulator would uh, control the demand and supply dynamics. Like they wouldn't really create an oversupply. They shouldn't, right? And that didn't happen. So regulator was there, but uh, the supply was, you know, wasn't planned. And uh, so there was oversupply which also hurt us. Yeah, I don't think I would, I would really invest into regulated industries anymore, even though I am in investment banking and you know, I am on the board of an investment bank, which is also heavily regulated. But at least this is an industry, we know the dynamics which, you know, very well, right? Mm. We didn't know the dynamics of the uh, energy industry well. We didn't know the demand-supply dynamics. We really didn't know much about it. So that was our maybe third mistake. I mean, we, mm. we went into an industry which really fully, there was one person in the group. So we all relied on him. But honestly, uh, as a group, I don't think we had a good understanding of, of the industry. Let, let me ask you another question. And then I'm going to go into kind of what I take away from it. The other question is, usually, you're talking about almost a 10-year 10, 10 period from 2007 uh, construction until, you know, right now, let's say we're talking about more than 10 years. And your group of people, your group of seven, have been under tremendous pressure throughout this time, I'm sure. Did the relationships break up? Um, did anybody run away or how is the, the seven these days? Did, they, did you guys stay together or how did it go? Well, first of all, these are all really very mature individuals. I mean, mostly all in their 50s. And they've seen, you know, a lot. And also in Turkey, I mean, we've seen a lot of crises, like uh, Asian crisis, Russian crisis. In 1994, we had a major crisis here. In two, the year 2000, we had a major, major crisis in Turkey. One third of our banks failed. Then we've seen 2008 global crisis. So this group knew like these things happen. And uh, so, I mean, nothing. We, did, we, never, we never had an ar argument among ourselves. Unfortunately, one of the partners died during this you know, mm. term. Uh, he got sick and died. Uh, but other than that was the, the, the saddest part. But other than that, no, no, you know, nothing. I mean, our friendship is as always and everybody handled this loss calmly even though for all of us it was a major loss but uh, no i mean okay i think handled very maturely so let me summarize what i take away from this story so for 
for yourself, for the listeners, and feel free to tell me if I've missed anything. But I, I want to talk about one thing about this story to the listeners that's, that's a critical thing, I, I believe, is that is failing in business is not a crime. Failure in business happens all the time. The key thing is to, as if you are struggling in your own startup or other business like that, the key thing is to remain honest about the situation to your investors and to your banks. Make your uh, case, make sure that they know, because if you start to hide what's going on, you can start to get into something, some fraud and breaking the law, and then you end up in trouble. So it's a very important lesson to stay uh, communicating and stay uh, honest about what's happening in your business and remember that failure in a business is not a crime. And I think that that's a, a key lesson that we didn't talk much about it in your story, but I think it's a message. I, to I totally agree. All these seven people, I mean, they are well-known people in the Turkish like banking industry and Turkish business circles. So for us, like going bankrupt or, or losing this company would be very embarrassing. And that didn't happen. I mean, we lost our money, but the company, you know, stayed. And also the banks we dealt with, you know, we've been always very open and honest to them. And they've been very friendly to us because they knew us, like they all knew us in person. So like it could have been very embarrassing, you know, if we would default on the loan and uh, we would go to, let's say court with these banks to the maybe bankruptcy court or something. So yeah. that didn't happen. So that's, you know, consolation part maybe. Yeah. And I think that it's an important lesson for people that are listening, that are in the middle of trouble within their own business. If you can just stay uh, communicating with your investors, when people invest in a business, they know it's high risk, just communicate. And that will help you to stay, keep yourself out of trouble. The other thing that I would mention about this that's so, uh, for me, is such an important lesson is that startup of a small business is a trap. We all dream that we're going to have a very big and successful business and make a lot of money. But in the end, chances are you're going to be trapped together, in this case, seven friends. You're going to be trapped in an investment that there's no way out. You can't go backwards and you can't go forward because nobody's buying it, for instance. And I experienced this in my coffee business when we set up our coffee factory. We started to sell coffee in Thailand in 1996. And then in 1997, the financial crisis hit and all of our customers went away. And we basically had to move into our factory and stay in the factory until we could get the business back up on our feet. Many times in 1998 and 1999 and 2000, we thought about the idea of getting out. But the reality is there was going to be no buyers for our equipment and we would get, you know, almost nothing for it. And so the result is we were kind of trapped. And when you're trapped in a small business, it can be very painful. Uh, the, the main lesson of how to get out of that trap is you get up each day and you just take one little step forward a day at a time. So that's the other thing that I would take away uh, from what you said. That's really the other thing, the, the last and third thing I would take away is I always tell people to never invest in something where you have to rely on the government uh, because yep. the government can change, as you explained, for instance, shifting to a preference for coal as an example. For, for most people, try not to come up. I, I always have had 
people come to me about different investment ideas of this or that related to a new government plan or policy. And I've got a relationship with the government and I'm going to be able to get this. And I always say for, for the majority of investors, never invest in something where you're relying on the government to deliver something because they don't have to, and they have all the power in the world to just not show up for that. So those would be the lessons that I take from, from what you've said. Do you have anything you would add? No, exactly, exactly. Especially if you're a small company, the government doesn't care about you. <laughs> you should be very careful about that. Yeah. I mean, one last thing I would add would be, I mean, you can lose money, right? I mean, money you can lose today, you can make it the other day, but uh, you should make sure that you don't lose your reputation because, you know, that's, that's the most important thing. So I think, you know, throughout this process, you know, we saved our reputation and uh, so we didn't have any problems with the market, with the regulatory authority or with the banks or with any of our clients. So we didn't lose face. So I think that's something, you know, one should be very careful about. Losing money is, is not the end of the world. Got it. Okay, so let's wrap it up with one last question, which is there are people listening to this show who are considering doing, going into this type of a business. It may not be the exact same, but, you know, the question is, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Again, I mean, I would say, first of all, with every investment, you should do your homework, right? You should really understand the implications of the investment and the possible outcomes. And uh, if you really don't understand, don't even touch it. This could be a, like any uh, capital market investment. It could be an equity investment. It could be a derivatives investment. Or like this, it could be a private equity investment. So you should make sure you really understand you know, what this will take and uh, how you will exit. You should at least have an idea of the exit strategy. And also you should be aware of all the legal uh, implications uh, that you face throughout this uh, investment period. You know? yep. So it's basically doing your homework and understanding all the nitty gritty details of the investment you're going in. It's a great point. And actually, tomorrow night, I'll be giving my first speech about what I've learned from 500 stories that people have submitted to me of their worst investment ever, and now close to 20 interviews. And the number one most common mistake is not doing your research, or as you said, your homework. So that's a yeah. great lesson to take away. Well, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, Attila, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are going to learn to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for our listeners? The, no, well, first of all, again, thank you very much. And uh, you know, I, throughout my life, I listened to all these success stories and nobody shares their bad investments, right? I mean, you always hear good stories and people keep the bad investments <laughs> to themselves. So thank you very much really for this podcast. And uh, I think it's, it's a very valuable tool uh, for uh, all the listeners. So thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap. I love the stories of loss because really that's where we learn. So that's another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. 
fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.